Hi everyone, Corey here. You know, I love superheroes and one of my favorite things to do is to lead service couples and individuals through strengths coaching. Kind of like discovering you have superpowers, you would be amazed at what you've been created to do, you just may not know it yet. I've led hundreds if not thousands through their strengths journey and I've seen couples increase communication, reduce conflict, and my favorite is when I see a military or first responder spouse finding their identity again after years of revolving around the service lifestyle. Strengths coaching can be done online and is not counseling, so we can work together regardless of where you are today or are going tomorrow. As a certified Gallup Strengths Coach, I can help you see your worth again and even help you see your spouse with new eyes. Head on over to life-giver.org and go to Work With Corey to schedule your first session. I'm giving all of my listeners 15% off their first session with me just to try it out. Simply use the promo code FIRST at checkout. Thanks for listening and thanks for spreading the word about the podcast. Welcome to season four of the Life Giver Podcast, a place for honest conversation and hope that will breathe life into your service, family, and home. This is your host, Corey Weathers, and I'm honored to take this opportunity to invest in you. Last time on the Life Giver Podcast. Addiction is one of those things that we're just always going to have, you know, as part of our story. And I want him to know that it doesn't define who I think he is. But as a society, sometimes people look at addiction as a weakness and not as an illness. And I think that's where I've really had good insight of how to treat him. Because I don't want him to think I think he's weak. Because I know he's not a weak person. He's a, If anything, the fact that he can be as sober at the times that he's sober, he's the strongest person that I know. Because he can, he can put all those demons that he has aside and continue to make good choices. Where in the past, he's not made good choices. So... I think that's where the misconception in our society is because we want to talk all about how weak people are with addiction and not talk about the strength. Because the time of strength is way more important than the time that they fall in. Absolutely. And that's what I love, love about the 12 steps and what I loved about working with substance abuse because the amount of insight, introspection, the strength, the accountability, all the things that go into what it takes for someone to recover and be sober is something that every single one of us should learn to do on a daily basis on almost everything that we go through in our life. Mm-hmm. I saw such strength and such hard work and such personal growth and um, that I would look at myself and look at, at other people that I would work with that weren't in recovery. And I'm like, we need to catch up to these people because mm-hmm. they are doing some really good work in their life. And they know so much more about themselves than most of us walking down the street do. Mm -hmm. So I absolutely agree with you 100%. Um, But one of the reasons why I, another reason why I encourage you to share your story is that you have done um, such an amazing job, not enabling him throughout this process. And, And most people fall into that trap. Most women, most spouses fall into the trap of enabling for a variety of reasons. I'm not saying you never did. I'm just Mm -hmm. saying that um, overarching in general, you worked very hard to be very intentional with your responses and how you handled specific situations in a way that um, most people are afraid and don't have the boldness to do it. And that's why I wanted you to share because um, describing a little bit about what enabling is would be where I see a lot of spouses that um, let's say, you know, your serving spouse is drinking and it is obvious and your kids are noticing it. And instead of letting those consequences play out between, let's say father and son, right. That the spouse gets involved and covers it up, you know, and just says, well, it's just this. And we're going to mask that over. And we're not going to talk about what's actually happening. And, mm-hmm. and what ends up happening is the, I know I'm stereotyping here just a little bit. So mm-hmm. everybody bear with me, but what happens is the, let's say military spouse, the wife, in this situation, um, takes on the responsibility of the relationship of the father to the son. So Mm -hmm. instead of letting those consequences play out where that son now has to wrestle with the fact that he's got an alcoholic father and have to do the hard work on that and needs to know the truth on that and how to wrestle through that relationship. Um, and this happens in so many different ways, not just addiction, Mm -hmm. but 
the wife in that situation feels bad for the son, right? Mm -hmm. And gets in the middle of it and, and wants to hide it to protect everybody. And then that's when you have what turns into the metaphor that everybody knows about, which is not pointing out the elephant that's in the room. And we start dancing around this very big issue that everybody's aware is happening Mm -hmm. and nobody's talking about it. And in a variety, I'm not saying you were perfect, but there were so many situations that you told me about where you let the truth be what it was. You let the consequences be what they were. You took responsibility for mostly yourself. And you even said earlier that there were consequences that were his for behaviors that he chose to do. And he needed to know what those consequences would be even proactively. Mm -hmm. So talk about that just for a second. Talk about, um, what were some strategies that you used? You mentioned in the beginning, um, Hey, you know, if you want to have a drink, I'm going to drive you to that bar, but there's consequences for that. So can mm-hmm. you talk with everybody a little bit about those consequences? Like how did you articulate those? Cause there's a lot of people listening that need those words. So they don't have them themselves. Yeah. And I, I think for, uh, for me and for how I speak to my spouse is that, um, I, my husband is a very intelligent person and he's, highly educated and, 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 and smart. And he, um, wants to do well in life. He wants to be successful. And when you suffer from addiction and mental illness and things like that, you kind of lose sight of those goals. So I do a lot of just prepping him and, and telling him all the things that I know are his goals about, you know, like if you want to get to this point, then we need to work on, you know, this. And we, as a couple talk a lot about, um, you know, how, how we're going to introduce our children to not make similar mistakes, you know, cause gen- alcoholism is something that's genetic and, and how can we talk to our children so that they know, again, not telling them don't ever drink because that's, that doesn't really work well when you're a parent, but giving them the opportunity to understand what it is and, and the, and to kind of be aware of that. When it comes to consequences, a lot of it, I, I parent with the love and logic style where it's very much natural consequences. And not that I was parenting my, my spouse, but I, it very much was like, well, when this happens, this happens. And that's just a natural consequence to your behavior. You know, when and there was one night where, he, again, he, he, he pulled the, I'm going to go to AA, but then, and he did go to AA because I tracked him on the phone, but then he stopped at the gas station and downed a couple beers on the way home. So by the time he got home, I knew he had drank. And, um... I, I called him on it. I was like watching a TV show and I looked up and I was like, you went and drank. And he was like, no, I didn't. And I was like, yeah, you did. And it's okay if you want to, but I'm going to watch this. So you're welcome to come sit with me, but I know you drank. And then he like kind of knew that he was caught, but didn't, we didn't actually fight about it. It was very much like, okay. So then he like went up to the bed and just like went to go to sleep. And I was like, but it was never, I was never combative with him. I think that's the mistake some people do is that they want it to be this like combative environment. And when when a person's in that state, when they're when they're fallen to their addiction, they're already feeling like crap. They already they already know they made the wrong choice for the most part. They don't need someone else belittling them and telling them that they made the wrong choice. And I think that I made very conscious decisions to kind of say, "You made a bad choice. I'll talk to you when you're sober." Like I don't, I'm not going to go into this cycle of like we're gonna fight about it and we're gonna have these moments of despair and like so our our children in that sense usually he would drink when they'd be sleeping they never woke up to their parents fighting because we never really fought um and that was me just being intentional of like this is a discussion to have when he's sober it's he's not going to make good choices when he's drunk so there's no reason to even engage so it was a lot of being intentional about that engaged piece and not being combative with each other um and this happened 12 years ago when we first were married i was a combative person in our marriage like i i fought to win fights and that was me in our marriage. Like, and I could win a fight like the best of them. I could pick them. I knew exactly what to say, so I would win that battle. But in the end, my marriage suffered because it wasn't about winning those battles. And we talked a lot. We did a lot of work in the, in the first couple years of our marriage of winning the battle isn't actually helping our marriage. So we need to be more compromising. We need to be more talking in a different way. And I had to learn how to fight fair with my husband because I was a combative fighter. He was the you know, like not the play, he was not as combative in his personality. So I had to learn to fight fair. So I took those tools from those first couple of years of our marriage and I keep using them. Um, and, and I know that about myself, that I am a combative fighter, that I have to kind of look back and be like, is this actually benefiting the end goal? Because 20 years from now, I want to be married to my husband and I want to be happy. And I don't want to be in, in a tornado of chaos, picking up destruction pieces. 
So if that's my end goal, what do I need to be doing today to make sure that if a tornado comes, we're not, we're almost not, you can't really always be prepared, but that we're, we're ready to not make it worse than it could be. Um, you have the shelter. Did you remove yourself from certain situations? Like if he was drinking too much and it was obvious that he's not going to be able to parent the kids, did you remove yourself with the kids from those situations or did you just avoid him and let him continue to drink as he wanted to? How did you handle those situations where you were probably as a wife and as a mom trying to figure out how do I handle this moment? So because he, my husband is a very smart drinker, <laughs> he, he always did it at times that again, the kids would be asleep already. And he, and it was like his secret club, like a secret thing he did. He never was very open about it. Um, so we never were. And, and again, because he's not a violent person, I never felt like we were in danger. So for the most part, it was making sure that whatever he had, that he had finished it and he didn't have the ability to get more. Um, I did hide keys a couple times just to make sure that he couldn't go back out mostly for his own safety. Um, and I, and I did would I would say, I will take you wherever you need to go, but the kids are sleeping. So we'll have to call like a family member or a friend to come over and hang out with the kids. But like, I'll take you where you want to go, but you can't leave because that's unsafe. Um, so there were times I, I did put those kind of boundaries up, but for the most part, once he realized that I knew he kind of wallowed and would at least go to sleep or, you know, want to just like veg out. He did, he wasn't a drinker that would continue unless it was in secret. So as soon as it was out in the open, as soon as, especially if, and especially if I caught him, um, it, it would kind of subside for that day or for that moment. Um, he would, the binges that he would go on were always secretive. And that's, and that again is different than some alcoholics. They don't really, some of them just don't care when they're drinking. Um, so. so I know that your experience is yours. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts if there's somebody out there that is on the other extreme who? does have somebody that is drinking in front of the kids and maybe not caring about how they, um, how much they drink in front of the kids or how they behave in front of family members or friends, or, um, is a little bit more of that aggressive, loud drunk. I think in, in first and foremost, you have to be safe, especially when it comes to your children your children need to be safe. You need to be safe. Um, and then your spouse obviously should be put in a situation that they're safe. Um, Everyone has to figure out what their line is. Um, something I struggle with and we've talked about is like where my line is and where would my, you know, if this happened, this would be, you know, the big you know, thing that would have, be the deal breaker. And I don't know where that is. Um, something that I contemplate all the time because I thought I knew and then a situation would happen that, you know, used to be my line and then it's not there anymore. And so I think for, for people, they have to work through their own story. They have to work through their own you know, situation, because every cycle is different too. Every relapse is different. The main thing is, and this is for, I think, any person that suffers from addiction, you can only help someone that wants to be helped. If you're with someone who's suffering from addiction and they do not think they have a problem, then you will never be able to convince them that they do. You just won't. You'll be talking to a dead horse because there's, there's nothing you can do to convince someone who doesn't think they have a problem that they do. They have to come to that realization, in my opinion, on their own. And they have to see those consequences for themselves. So if you have a spouse or a family member or a friend that's suffering from addiction and they think everything's fine, then you just need to show them their consequences. Like, I don't want to be around you when you're drinking. I don't want to be around you when you're like this. So I'm just going to remove myself because when you're like this, it's not someone I like to be around. And then hopefully through those consequences, they'll realize, oh, everyone that I like doesn't want to be around me right now. And then hopefully they come to the realization on their own, I need to seek out help. Because the best thing you can do for someone who is suffering from addiction is to be there when they need it, but not enable them and not to give them the environment that like, well, we'll just stand by you through everything, thick and thin. But if they're seeking help and they're working to move forward, all you can do is be supportive. And that's why I think I've been able to really stick it out in my marriage and be supportive of my husband is because he's in the times of sobriety has been seeking out help and wanting to be better. If he ever came to me and was just willy nilly, you know, I'm just going to do this and I don't really care about the consequences, then I'd have to really rethink my mind frame and my goals because I don't, I wouldn't want to be around that. I wouldn't want my children around that. So I, for our story and for our situation, I think we, we make choices because he's willing to move forward and to get, and to seek out those, those help. But for people who are not, whose spouses are not there yet, I can just say they have to come to that realization for themselves. They're not going to. It's, it's, you're, you're not going to get anywhere if they think everything's fine. 
so proud of you. Um, I've said so many times, this is what she's saying as far as pointing out those consequences and sometimes being the person that allows those consequences to happen. That's a huge part of this equation is that if you're in a relationship with somebody, uh, the, the first consequences that they're going to experience are those that they're living around. And if they're not experiencing those consequences, it's turning the lights on in the room to go, hey, let's just point out what's obvious here, that mm-hmm. when you drank again yesterday, that I feel discouraged by that. And I'm disappointed. And I, and I, you know, whatever that communication is, pointing out the obvious that I feel separate from you, I feel distant from you, that you're choosing liquor over being with us at Mm -hmm. Disney World, right? That these are Disneyland. Like these are the natural consequences of I'm upset Mm -hmm. that you chose liquor over our family that day or chose liquor over my birthday and celebrating me, right? Those are where the consequences that you are expressing. Mm -hmm. And yes, I know that there's fear for those of you listening. There's fear of if I share those consequences and they're just going to spiral into shame and drink more. Mm -hmm. And that is a very real fear. However, if they don't ever experience those consequences, they are never going to hit whatever that rock bottom has to be for them to to decide that step one, which is life is unmanageable. The way that I'm doing it is not working. Every time I try, I get drunk again, or every time I try, I use again. Mm -hmm. And no amount of my own personal strength is anything ever getting better. It's just continues to fall apart. And so everything is unmanageable around me. And that's where the denial breaks. Mm -hmm. And they go like your husband did to be able to go, yes, I, I stayed sober for four or five years, but look what happened. I still wasn't able to do it by myself. And maybe I actually do need that help because I'm going to destroy myself and my family if I don't do something different. Mm-hmm. And so it does say, it says a lot about him and his ability to break that denial and to accept the fact that he is an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't cover this very, very important topic with you. And I know some of you took the survey and Alyssa and I actually went through the survey a little bit. In fact, even while we've been talking, Alyssa, people are continuing to take the survey. It's so, so good. Um, And maybe I need to do a whole other episode where I'm just talking about the survey by itself because wow, first responders, you really came through for this um, survey. And Alyssa and I were actually talking about before we started recording how, you know, the military lifestyle just has so many more events where it surrounds alcohol as like one of the members of the family or is part of the unit. It's just like every military ball. You have your, you know, your grog bowl. Yeah, exactly. You have the grog bowl and everybody's supposed to drink of it, you know, and if you don't drink of it, there's, I mean, it's okay for you to not, not drink of it, but it's kind of the thing you do, you know, Mm -hmm. or like you were saying with reintegration, and so we were actually wondering if there was a difference since there were so many first responders that took this, um, you know, I was making the point that I wonder if sometimes with first responders, you know, you're going out the very next day to do your job where you have a weapon on your hip and you're expected to use it and function um, for public safety and for your own safety and for your partner's safety. And so I wonder sometimes if um, it's not as much of an not, I'm not saying that's not so much, much of an issue because everybody in the survey said that drinking was definitely part of the culture. In fact, um, I asked the question, have you seen alcohol used in the service culture around you as a way of to numb or escape the stress of the service lifestyle? And 65% of everybody said, yes, it is very much part of the culture of both sides. And so, um, but there was a fewer, I think, people in the first responder culture that felt like there was some legitimate like addiction issues in alcohol. Um, Whereas I wonder if I were to separate this between military and first responder, what would the Mm -hmm. difference be because of what we were just saying about it being part of so much of the celebration of the culture. But what I wanted to actually point out and Alyssa, this will kind of give us this final topic to talk about. you know, it was not a surprise to me that those of you who are the supporting spouse at home do not have as much of an issue drinking as um, when you answered the questions about your spouse, your serving spouse, that there was more of an issue. In fact, on average, one out of every four couples were saying, um, one out of four people were noticing that this is a problem. And that's a significant number. It doesn't sound like a lot when you look at a graph, but it is a significant number that one out of every four um, has some issues with drinking and that 
you don't feel like there's some good resources for you to go to, that there's still that stigma very present. But what I wanted to actually, um, for Alyssa to finish talking about with me is really how does this impact your marriage? Because it was, there was a good, so maybe 40% were saying that you, you as a couple turned to alcohol to cope with the stressors of your lifestyle. Um, but I think that the question has addiction of any kind caused enough stress in your marriage that separation was considered as a possible solution. Um, about a third of you said yes. Um, and even bigger than that, that you don't feel like you could go to certain events. There's a good, another third of everyone that answered the survey that said, um, you don't feel like you could go to an event and not drink and not draw attention to yourself in a negative way. And so here's what I think that I want to talk with you about, Alyssa, is what were your thoughts? I know we just kind of ran through the survey before we started recording, but what were some of the thoughts that you had as you saw some of the results? I was surprised, and I, and I do think it's a cultural difference between a first responder and service members, because I, when a, a service member goes through times where they don't, they have like those long deployments where alcohol isn't an option, and I don't necessarily think first responders have those big, long time frames where they're not drinking there. So they're able to kind of pick and choose the times that it's appropriate. Um, so I don't, and, and on top of that, you know, the, the desire to escape, cause we have in the same sense that we have long deployments, you also have long leave times, um, because you get those, you know, 30 days of leave, um, that I don't think a lot of first responder families get, um, that is a, a benefit, um, after a long deployment or before a big deployment, you get these big, you know, um, time off dates. And that's where I feel like people really go on their binges of like, oh, I can let loose because I don't even have to be at work tomorrow. I have 30 days off and um, I can really exclude that behavior. When I, when I looked at the survey, I remember thinking when I looked at the questions of um, that not only did they ask very true statements, but they also were looking at how does the spouse perceive the, their service member or their um, first responder. And I, and I, that's where I think the key for, for clinicians or for people looking at addiction is that someone who may be suffering from addiction has a different view of what their addiction looks like. And it's really, I, and that's what I think um, my husband's rehab did a really great job of, of talking with the, the family members. And um, we talked a lot while he was in detox um, about how a lot of people in there didn't have people come visit them or didn't have, there was a, a family like support meeting once a week and we were the only married couple there. Most people were already divorced. They didn't have those support people in their lives. And if they had people coming, it's because they were younger and they had parents. Um, but when it came to a spouse or a significant other, I was the only one that was, that was there in support of my, my person. And I think that is pretty telling to me that, um, and in a way, I know I shared this to you in January when we saw each other that a lot of people like say, oh, you're, you're, I'm so proud of you that you're, you're sticking out and you're doing all this good things. But in me, it, me, where I was still processing it, all I heard was, you're so stupid for sticking this out. Like, how are you, everyone else would have walked away. I can't believe you're doing this. Um, and I really had to retrain my brain and remember that like, that's just the negativity talking and I need to remember you know, our goals in mind and why should, I should not be hearing it as a negative, um, that people were trying to give me, you know, props and I was taking it as this negative thing. So I think the survey in general really hit some topics that I, and I, and I wonder also how much people, I know I'm a very upfront person. If you want to know how I think I'm going to say it and that's my personality. And there are a lot of people that that's not who they are. And it's really hard to talk about addiction. And it's also really hard to talk when your marriage is failing. Um, so when you get in front of a group of people, it's not something like that's not the first thing out of people's mouths. Like, Oh, it's nice to meet you. Oh, my marriage is really rocky right now. That's just not something that people do. Um, so, but that's also why when my husband and I go out to functions and we're not drinking, we usually don't say, Oh, he's an alcoholic. That's not what comes out of our mouth. It's usually like, Oh, we don't drink because our marriage is better when he doesn't drink. And we make it about us because I don't want people to think again, that there's something wrong with my husband because there's nothing wrong with him, but we are better when he's not. And, and that's where we usually just answer people like, Oh, we're good. We're not drinking tonight. And then they, they further ask questions our marriage is just better without it. And that's also been helpful for our friends that did know us as drinkers. Um, Cause most of the time your friends want your marriage to succeed. So when you put it in context 
of like, we are better not drinking together and we are better not to have alcohol in our lives. Our, our friends kind of understood that, especially before he was willing to admit at what point in the addiction he was at. I mean, it was he- I'm so proud of you for that answer, by the way. Like, I hope everybody's taking notes because- <laughs> She's crying. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I know. I'm like, this is so good. So good. Um, are you the one that's saying that? Are you both? It depends on the situation. Yes. Like, it depends yes. on who's, who's part. I'm usually the talker in our relationship, guilty. Um, my husband tends to be more introverted. He doesn't necessarily like social situations. And I know that this is a topic that gets him more anxious. So usually I'm the one that says, the, you know, we're better off without it. And this um, is something that he agreed was okay. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, because we talked about it before we had that statement, we talked a lot of, there was a couple like awkward moments where like people, like, especially with people that knew us as drinkers that we've seen along the way. Um, there was a lot of that awkwardness, especially before he was really willing to admit, you know, that it was part of who he was. Um, so there was a lot of awkwardness of like, oh, I'm just not drinking today. Or, you know, I'm just, I'm good, whatever, you know? And so we kind of had to come up with a game plan to put him at ease that he knew what he was going to say and that he knew I was going to be supportive of that. Um, so it really just, it's kind of cultivated over the last, you know, a couple of years of like, what's, what is it that is, feels the most authentic? Cause I don't want to lie. I don't want it to be, but I also don't want to out him as like, I don't want to give him, you know, a, a title or a stigma that he doesn't want. So it's something that we just have talked about and figured out. This is where we're both really comfortable in saying, and I also think to acknowledge as a society, we, a lot of times people don't want to talk about the, the work they put into their marriage. It's almost like you have to talk about how wonderful your marriage is all the time. And to acknowledge that like, yeah, we're better without it. it kind of almost alludes to we've had times that we weren't perfect. And I think it's good for people to hear that, that like, I know my marriage isn't perfect, but we're working on it and we're a work in progress. And us not drinking is a part of that work in progress. And I think that's just good for everyone to hear, you know? I'm so proud of you um, for so many reasons. I'm proud of you both for having these tough conversations, for being really intentional, for having game plans, for having code words and phrases and things that you're prepared to um, handle that situation. You know, when we talk about recovery, it is very much about, you know, is that person who's struggling with an addiction going through the 12 steps, doing those introspective um, steps of understanding what your triggers are, being prepared for those triggers. And if all of us, you know, even when we did, when I did the survey, I asked you guys, um, you know, yes, we could talk about alcohol all day long, but there's so many other issues that aren't talked about that are just as much destructive topics when they get out of control. And I, I really expect the pornography numbers to go up as people are more honest. Um, some of you were very honest about food being issue. And I don't know if that's a food issue that you're seeing in your serving spouse or for you or for both of you, but that was definitely something that I um, really paid attention to in my own life when I worked with people with addiction was I may not know what it's like to be addicted to crack or heroin mm -hmm. or alcohol, um, mm -hmm. but I definitely saw an addiction to sugar in my life and I could relate to that. And I, I asked, you know, I had to ask myself, to, what would this be like for me to go through the 12 steps, even just thinking about sugar in my life? Mm -hmm. Because there was days where I was like, I have to have something sweet, right? I have to have that afternoon, whatever. Yeah. Um, and, and, and just trying what that's like to stop yourself and go, why do I need that right now? What's triggering me to want that comfort food? Mm -hmm. And I think it gives you an inside perspective. Those of you who even tried the whole 30 diet know it is hard. Mm -hmm. It is hard to not turn to something that you feel triggered to want to have and you feel better once you have it. And so there's lots of ways that we could understand each other a little bit better and, and have that level of support. But there's um, a huge topic that we haven't talked about, Alyssa, and that is, um, and I know this is a big one for you, but that is how this has impacted you and how you experience this whole thing. Because you've done a great job explaining his behavior, his triggers, his relapses, how he's grown. You've also, I want to commend you on doing such a great job of speaking about your spouse in public in ways that are praiseworthy and pointing out the things that he's doing right. And um, a lot of people listening, I would encourage you to take note of how she talked about her marriage today because it, no marriage is perfect. We all make mistakes. And so many people may would have come on the podcast and just thrown their spouse under the bus because they are in so much pain. And you've done such a good job of really 
um, pointing out who you see him to be and that this is somebody that struggles with an addiction. It's not somebody who is the addiction Mm -hmm. and separating those two things and loving your spouse for who he is when he's sober and loving him in sickness and health. And you've done a great job. However, we haven't (laughs) talked about you. Yeah. And we haven't talked about, um, you, you mentioned this at the very beginning of our conversation about um, the resentment that you were struggling with, the um, pain that you were going through, and it's impossible for someone to be as strong as you have been through this whole process and not have, have to do the really tough internal work inside yourself. And I know it's been a long road for you too. So why don't you share, because um, there's a lot of people that really need to be validated on that right now and their own experience of frustration, resentment, anxiety, any number of things that I know that you felt. So talk a little bit about what your experience has been like. Um, there's certain really big events that to this day, if we, like my birthday being a good one, and even our anniversary, there were a couple anniversaries. Um, there was one back when we first, after his second deployment, that our entire evening was ruined because of his drinking. And then our last one, which is a big uh, anniversary that I felt like he didn't give effort to because he was in the middle of a relapse. So those were big moments where I wanted, where I was expecting my spouse to be present and he just wasn't. And I had to, or still have to remind myself that the resentment, you know, I can't just keep feeding it, but I have to acknowledge it and then, you know, kind of let it go and hope. And where I'm still struggling is that, um, when you want, I want him to know that I'm willing to give extra percent sometimes, you know, in a marriage, sometimes it's, you know, you want to always be giving, you know, 110%. Absolutely. I don't like the 50, 50 analogy. Like we both should be giving hundred percent. Absolutely. But there are times where I know he's struggling. So I have to give a little bit more. And when this first started, you know, those numbers of years ago, I thought, okay, I'm going to give a little bit more right now. And eventually it will be my turn. And my turn really just hasn't come. Um, It's continually been his turn. (laughs) He's been sick for a while. And it gets frustrating, especially because, you know, the the alcoholism is just one piece to some other medical things he's got going on. And it's hard to watch your spouse be sick. And a lot of his stuff is, you know, invisible things that I can't help him. You know, it's not something that I can just be like, here, take this medicine and it will automatically be all better. Um, or yes, you can go take that three hour nap while I have all three kids and have to clean the house. Like it's really easy to fall into this like negative space and I'm not perfect. I definitely have days where, you know, last weekend was a great example of me having a really awful day with him where I was, I'm really not a spiteful person, but I became a spiteful person for about an hour and a half. And, um, it took me calling a girlfriend and being like, this is what's happening. What should I do? And she was like, you should do this. And I was like, nope, not going to do that. And I didn't listen to her, which was a mistake because she was giving me good advice but I wasn't ready to hear the good advice, you know, and I think acknowledging, and I've gone back and, you know, one told my spouse that I should have listened to my friend's advice and done the right thing instead of being spiteful. Um, but also just letting it be like, I was in a spiteful place. I was, I was in a negative spot. And I think what I'm allowing myself at this point, when this relapse happened six months ago, I was kind of in a comatose, like I was in like survival mode where I wasn't really being emotional. I was kind of just like getting through the day making sure everyone, you know, very programmatic, like, okay, this is what has to get done today. I have to make sure I go to the detox center to see him for this meeting. I have to make sure the kids are good with this. I have to do my full-time job that I was working, like all the things had to be done. Um, and I wasn't allowing myself to really have feelings yet. And it wasn't until after the new year that I was starting to feel like the anger that I had felt that the holidays were ruined, that this whole transition had happened that we really weren't prepared for, that I had to start a new career that I really wasn't, you know, hundred percent behind. Um, so that anger and how I work that anger and through that anger, I think is really key that I wasn't, that I was allowing myself to feel it and not feeling guilty about it, but acknowledging it and being really vocal. And so I wasn't hiding it. I wasn't saying, and, and when he would be like, what's your, what's your problem today? I'm like, I'm still a little angry. Like I'm still angry at you. And he was like, well, what are you going to get over that? I'm not drinking. And then that's like his answer. Like, well, I'm sober now. And I'm like, but I'm still angry. <laughs> you know, I, I think the hard thing with addiction is that the times that I'm the most angry about are times that he doesn't necessarily remember. Mm-hmm. And so having him sit like here, like I'm angry about this moment where you really lied to my face and he didn't live that moment. He wasn't really present there, but I lived it. So it's really hard to process that together because again, as I talked about, even with the first deployment, we had two different experiences 
of the same experience. Like I experienced a completely different moment than he did because he doesn't really remember it. And, and that's really hard to work through. Um, and it, it's really hard to put yourself first. Um, any mom with any age children know that it's hard to put yourself first. Um, and then when you put in other, you know, things going on, you know, a transition out of the military is a huge thing. And then addiction on top of that is another you know, huge part of it. So it's really hard to find moments. And I am very intentional about my girls' nights. I um, have amazing friends all across the country that I keep in touch with that I'm very intentional about connecting with and making sure I, you know, keep in touch with people. And, uh, I, and I'm intentional about, like, my own time and my own space and making sure that I'm not forgetting who I am. Um, that's partly why I believe my career, which has always come secondary, I still always kept some part of because that's mine. That's my thing to hold on to. And I, I hope that people out there who are military spouses know that you're valuable, that you're important, and that what you want out of your life, even if it's separate from your marriage and your kids, is equally as important as your husband's career. I think there are times where we're taught or we're told that you need to step back because his career is more important than what you, but I went to college just like he did. I have a master's degree just like he does. Like, I'm just as important and just as valuable as my husband and his career. While I want to support his career and think it is an honorable profession, I am just as equally important. And I think we're not taught that when we're in a service relationship. We're almost taught to, well, you just, you just worry about saying the right thing to his commander. Don't, you, know, you don't want to mess up things. And I, and I think telling each other that it's okay to want more and it's okay to put yourself first within reason, within you know, what works for your marriage. You, know, you don't want to just... <laughs> I think what happens is when you don't value yourself and you yeah. don't see yourself as an asset and you don't see the purpose and identity in your life outside of just what you're doing at home. Um, mm -hmm. Again, you know, we talked in, in episode one about things being seasonal, obviously, mm -hmm. but um, what happens is that you end up swinging the pendulum and then we have so many spouses that become destructive in their entitlement because they've put themselves second for so long and have that now we're going to cause destruction by forcing our family to revolve around us so that we can have that career. And mm -hmm. what I hear you actually saying is, is see yourself as just as valuable. Find yourself in that middle space mm -hmm. where you're not destroying every, you know, either extreme is just, is yeah. going to cause destruction. Mm -hmm. but advocating for yourself and doing that in a healthy way. And even though seasons might be more difficult than other seasons mm -hmm. that we should always be finding value and worth in our, in who Absolutely. we're created to be. Absolutely. And I think also just re remembering that it's, it's really easy. And I've fallen into this trap. You know, we talked about having babies on deployments and things and whenever someone would be like, well, that must've been so hard. I always kind of played it off. Like, Oh, well someone, someone had it worse. Like this is this, here's this example of someone who had it worse than me. And Instead of saying, yeah, that was hard and, and it sucked and I really struggled instead of it holding that to what it was, because it's very easy to say, well, someone has it worse because yes, yeah, someone does always have it worse, but that doesn't discount the pain that you're feeling, you know, like it's okay to feel like in a hole, even if someone has a bigger hole, you know, your hole is still valid, you know, and I think that's what we forget, especially as women that we want to either push away and apologize for feeling certain things. Instead of just saying, like, this is where I'm at, I feel this way, and hopefully I'll be able to not feel this way for very long, and I'll work it out. But, you know, and allowing ourselves to, to talk and be vulnerable together, I think, is really key. How are you healing? How are you doing healing from some of those big moments like Disneyland and your anniversary? How are you working on that? Because I think that's where most spouses would also find themselves very stuck and not moving forward in their relationship because it, they're pulled back by those big betrayals. Yeah. Uh, I think I'm still working on that. I definitely am a work in progress there. And, um, it's not something that I can say, Oh, I fixed it because I did this. Cause I, it's definitely still something that I struggle with. And in the midst of a fight, that's usually what I bring up. That's my go-to like, well, you ruined this, um, which is not healthy, <laughs> but, but I do it. And I mean, we all do things that we're not proud of. Um, but the main thing that I think I'm trying to do and that I'm working towards doing is to just be very open in our communication so that, and be very forward thinking in like, how can we try to have a better season moving forward? Um, because it's easy to look back and be like, well, this, this was a terrible time, you know, let's, and, and relive some of those times. It's, and it's more fun and more 
productive to look forward and to say, how can we do better? How can we work harder on that? And again, I'm a, definitely a work in progress on that one. It's, it's something that I still struggle with. Um, I, a lot of it for me is just processing it and, and acknowledging the pain and the resentment um, because that's where you have to really be careful because I don't want to, I don't want to be a resentful person. I don't want to be negative. That's not who I am. And um, so reminding myself again, who I am and how valuable I am and how I'm loved by many and by you know, people around me and I want to be that person. So I don't want to be a resentful person. I don't want to fall into that pit. So I think that's really is just reminding yourself. Um, I, I used this example last night. At a, I went to a girls' night last night. And it, as a culture, we celebrate divorce in a way that is unique, I think. Like, oh, we're gonna, you're, you left your spouse. You're free now. We're going to have a divorce party for you. Like, it's a celebration almost, right? Mm. And I, I was telling them, I was like, I want someone to throw me a party and be like, you stuck through your marriage. You went through this hard thing. <laughs> here's your party, you know, like, and not that like, that's kind of silly, of course, but like as a society, we're not acknowledging the people that work through hard things. So true. And, and that's where I'm struggling. Cause I want to like, not that I'm going to wear a shirt, like I worked through my marriage this week, you know, but like, I want to like have this huge party where my friends come over and like, yes, you guys worked hard and we're not perfect, mm-hmm. but we, we stuck it out instead of like, you know, cause it, 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 divorce parties, I've been to them, but some of them are fun, you know, but like, I don't want to celebrate giving up on my marriage. I want to celebrate that I'm here in my marriage, even though it was really, really hard or it still is very hard, you know? And I think that's as a society. And that puts a whole new perspective on what any of us should be thinking about on our anniversaries, Mm -hmm. right? Because we tend to, you know, Matt and I are going to celebrate 20 years in May Mm -hmm. and it's like, what do we do? Um, you know, do we just kind of, some people, we just default into like, we'll just go out to eat. We'll just Mm -hmm. this, you know, but what would it be like to actually celebrate and what Mm -hmm. would it look like to plan a celebration of all Mm -hmm. of that hard work? And I've known people in the past who every year for their anniversary actually go and get a counseling session, even when things are great because it's Mm -hmm. their checkup and it's their gift to each other to say, Mm -hmm. Hey, we feel like we're doing great, but let's just get a third party perspective so we can do even better. Like that's their gift to their, their relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, now Alyssa, before we wrap up here, um, I've been thinking this whole time, um, that when we saw each other in January, we, I won't go into the details of it, but we were with a friend of ours, um, who did not have a story like you've had, Mm -hmm. whose, um, whose husband was not able to, um, stay sober and win the battle against alcohol and, um, ultimately took his own life because of it. And that's one of the things that we came together to support our good friend who was going through that. Um, this just happened to have landed this funeral that we went to just happened to have landed right after all of this with you and your husband and where you chose to come and support your friend, um, going through a lot of some of the things that you had gone through, but it was ending differently Mm -hmm. and choosing to leave your husband at home with the kids. And um, do you want to talk a little bit about what that was like and what you learned from that experience? Sure. Um, so when we first, so we, he had just gotten out of rehab when we got the phone call um, regarding her and um, her spouse. And so I immediately called her because we were friends and I was so shocked. And when she started telling her story, it was mind-boggling how parallel our universes were and we had zero idea that they had gone through rehab around the same time that they were struggling around the same time and um, they both you know recently transitioned out of the military and it was we had we had both regretted that we didn't realize that we were going through it together because we would have been a much better support if we had known months earlier um, but I felt called to go to her funeral to the funeral for the main reason that it could have easily been, you know, us. And I wanted her to know that she did nothing wrong, um, that she couldn't have changed her spouse, that that was their decision. And that she's got people around her that aren't judging them that aren't looking at it as this big thing. And I think for me, leaving my spouse for that weekend was, um, it was in order to gain trust, you have to give people opportunities to earn the trust. And I had given him, you know, little bits and pieces of time with the kids alone where he was sober and, you know, all that. Um, but this was the first time I was leaving for a weekend. And um, I knew I had people on call. I have, you know, friends and family nearby that knew that this was a big deal, um, that we're not going to bother them, but we're just going to check up and make sure that everything was okay. 
Um, and I wanted to trust him, even though a part of me was like, oh, this might turn into a terrible idea. Uh, and then God was on my side because he sent a snowstorm that weekend. So even if they wanted to go out, they couldn't go anywhere. They were kind of stuck in the house. With the it was one of those like, oh, I can kind of ease because I can't even drive anywhere. But anyway, um, it, it, but it was for me, it was a good time to acknowledge how far we had come in that short amount of time that I was willing to tell him, I trust you and I know that you can do a hard thing. And he wanted me to go for equal reasons because he wanted to show me that he could earn back that trust. And I think that's really important to, you know, acknowledge. And that's, I get, and that's again, why it was so hard. The relapse was so hard because we had talked about how we didn't want it to happen. And then it inadvertently already had happened or was going to happen, even though we had talked about it. So just because you're open and honest in your communication doesn't mean it's going to automatically save you from all things that are negative and bad. Um, and that's not going to save them from making their choices. In the end, they're going to make choices that, you know, you're going to have to figure out how to move forward from. And, I, and in reality, that's the, those couple months, it was a good shock to our system and realizing like what's important, um, where do we not want to be, what, what would be the a real rock bottom, you know, of kids growing up without their parent. And that's terrifying to me. I don't want my children to do that. And I, my heart breaks for my girlfriend who is dealing with that currently. And, um, I just sent them a little care package and I told, I told my husband, I was like, I can't imagine the pain and the grief. And I, um, and we live so far that it's not something that I can just go next door and, you know, and, and sit in comfort. And that's, I think the hardest thing about this life where you have friends everywhere is that you can't be everywhere. Um, and you can't, give the time and mm -hmm. respect to people that you want because of proximity. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of things that we miss in supporting each other. I know a lot of you listening feel that way too. It can be a very lonely existence sometimes when you're moving and people are moving away. And however, um, what I love about this community, first responder and military, and those of you who are first responders that don't feel like you have a lot of community, I say over and over and over again, that we need to cross the lines to support each other because when things do happen, people show up, people are there for you when you, you need it the most. And so I think to end our time with Alyssa during that trip, you know, you said, where is the person that's doing a podcast on this? <laughs> where, where is the person that's going to talk about this topic? Because I can't find anybody that's ta talking about the things that I need to hear. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that's what started this conversation of, we need to have this podcast and we need to have this conversation between us for somebody else that's listening that is in the same situation that you have been in. What would you say to them? What is it that you have been needing to hear? Um, and what would you want to say that, you know, somebody else needs to hear? Yeah, that's a really, really great question. Uh, what I was wanting to hear in general was, um, that saying your truth doesn't make it easier. It does, you're saying your truth to someone else is just finding the support. People will come if they know that you, that you, most of the time, if you have a good support system and I tend to have really amazing friends, but they don't know to check in on me if I don't tell them what's going on. And it's very easy to fall into shadows and to fall into some darkness because you're not bringing the subject to light. Um, and that's where I feel like I've been at my dark times are the times that I haven't reached out to people and that I haven't said what's going on. Um, I know there sometimes there were times that my spouse was like, you just have to go tell everyone our business. And it wasn't about that to me. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to tell everyone how you messed up. It was more like I need to tell my friend because they need to check in on me and make sure that, that I'm okay. And I think that's the reality is that we, as a community, as, as, spouses as women as um, people that are caregivers for people who suffer from addiction is we need to just know that it's okay to be vulnerable it's okay to show that everything's not perfect um, social media is terrible about that because everyone thinks they have to put on this happy face and perfect life and that's just not real that's not life and um, I may not show my vulnerabilities on Facebook or social media but I do reach out to my friends and show my vulnerability with them. And then, so, and the big thing about addiction and about going through troubles is that to not think that one moment can define the rest of the story 
um, that it's okay to have a really awful night or a really awful moment, but not let that be the defining factor and to not give up on the rest of your story based on that one mistake or that one moment. Um, it's very easy to think that like, oh, I messed up again. My wife's going to be mad at me. I'm done. This is worthless. It's very easy to feel that way. And I think we need to remind ourselves that that one moment should not and will really could not, um, unless you do other things, it should not end your story. It should like remember that there are people that need you, that there are people in this world that want you around. And that's what I keep telling my spouse when he's in his dark moments is that like, you're needed, you're wanted, you're loved, um, your mistakes don't define you. And, and that's what I need to hear. That's what everyone needs to hear. We all make mistakes. We're all not perfect. And to be vulnerable and to sit with each other and to acknowledge that in each other, I think is very important for our society that we're not doing because we're not doing these face-to-face conversations and we're not giving each other like true full stories um, and respecting those times with each other. Um, and that's what we need more of. And that's why I think I was like wanting to hear more about it. Cause I was like, where I have, I, I feel like I'm the only one talking about this. No one else feels this way. Um, so, and it's, it's interestingly enough that now that I've been more vocal in our story, other people who I didn't know were suffering from the same thing are coming out and being like, you know, I've been dealing with this, you know, for whatever. And I had a phone call this morning from a friend who um, is actually the opposite. The service member was worried because the spouse has been drinking um, behind their back. And they were, she was like, well, what did they need to do to get her to a rehab center? And I was like, well, here's what we did and here's what worked. Um, so, which is nice to know that like other people think of me like as a subject matter, not expert because I'm far from expert, but a subject matter person who they can go to and kind of have some advice. And it's nice to know that, that they know that that's a safe place for them to come because I'm not going to be like, oh, I need to know the whole story. Give me the person's name. You know, give me every detail. Like, I don't need to know any of that, um, nor should any of us. And that's what's important. It's, it's not the details. It's the story and it's the person. It's who's behind those mistakes that's important. Uh, Alyssa, I'm so proud of you. I am so proud of you for so many reasons. Um, thank you for sharing so much of your story on your wisdom and your encouragement. Um I feel challenged and inspired by you. And I'm so thankful that God allowed our our paths to cross. And um, I'm so glad that you are are part of my support system. And um, you've been such a good friend. And um, you're one of the most loyal people I've, I've ever known. And you show up for people. And I'm so glad that you have been honest and open with your story so that people can give that back to you because you deserve that and you need that. And we all do. And so thank you for being honest and willing and being honest with me to say, Hey, we need to talk about this. And I'm so, so glad that you did. So thank you for, for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the life giver podcast. If you're enjoying these conversations as being free of advertising or sponsorship, Please help me by spreading the word to other military and first responder families that might benefit from the show. If you'd like to find out more about me or LifeGiver, you can find more information at www.coryweathers.com or life-giver.org.